is Jesus as king, walking through uh, the Old Testament book of 1 Samuel, seeing Israel desiring and asking for a king, and knowing that we now in the New Testament, through the gospel, uh, the good news of Jesus, we have a king in Jesus. And so uh, we're going to be walking through chapter 13 tonight, and the topic will be how to make disciples. I'll explain that in a second, but chapter 13 starts a um, couple chapters worth of Saul's reign as king, and it's a pretty short reign. He starts off um, kind of rough. His whole time as king has some highs and lows, and we see in chapters 13, 14, and 15 what that looks like, but even today, uh, as we go through chapter 13, it seems like as soon as his reign as king gets started, it's going to be coming to an end. So what we're looking at today is Saul fighting the Philistines. And in that, we see his primary mission as king was to protect uh, the kingdom and to expand the kingdom. And so what do you do with these Old Testament texts? I mean, if you look at the rest of 1 Samuel, we got a lot of chapters of fighting, uh, of just battles. And there's a lot of different things uh, that can be said for it. But here's the beauty of Scripture. There's sometimes uh, a lot of different ways to accurately preach the same text. In other words, you can focus and emphasize different things that God gives us. His word is living, it's active, and it speaks to us sometimes a little bit different each time we read it, even though the text in and of itself does not change. The meaning, the heart of it does not change. And so what we do, uh, reading this from a New Testament perspective, is we see that, hey, this is all about the mission of God in the Old Testament for Saul. What then can we take as we walk through um, our own part in the mission of God now uh, as New Testament believers. And so he is building a physical kingdom and we are trying to expand a spiritual kingdom here on earth. And so Saul's going to have uh, through his flaws and his successes some tips on how to do that. Now before we even jump into um, all of the text, I want to want to point out a few things about discipleship. You see, hopefully by now, because we talk about this uh, week in and week out, hopefully by now you know we all make disciples, right? Like we're around each other, we talk to people, we influence people, uh, we, we have our personalities um, rub off on folks, we, we help uh, each other in life. Like we are discipling people, we're helping people to follow something. Now the question is for the church, are we making disciples of ourselves? and our own uh, judgment, our own opinions, our own thoughts, our own ideas, or are we making disciples of Jesus? In other words, helping people to follow Jesus. And so um, we're going to look at a few things that will help us in that. But some of us coming into this, when we think of discipleship, we, has, we have some misconceptions. And sometimes I think we get caught up in different methods, and we grow up uh, a lot of times in the church with different understandings of what discipleship looks like. And so let me, let me just throw a few of those out there and just kind of get them out of the way so we have a decent foundation for uh, discipleship. So how about, um, how about this one? Is discipleship something that needs to be done one-on-one or in a group setting? And like most of these, we're going to see Jesus did both. He met one-on-one. Uh, he had his three, he had his 12, he had his hundreds, and he had thousands that listened to him. So he did both. He was in a group setting, and he was one-on-one. Or how about this? Is discipleship supposed to be more about teaching? So like, I'm teaching you how to follow Jesus, or 
more of a lifestyle of walking and, and um, you know, a matter of what I'm doing right now with you. Like this could be discipleship. Or if I said, hey, let's go get some ice cream. And in that, we just happen to talk about Jesus and how to follow him. Like which one would be correct? And the truth is Jesus did both. He preached to the masses. He preached to his own followers. Uh, but he also went on a three-year camping trip with 12 of them. And so he had uh, informal meetings around campfires and everything else. And so he he did both. Is um, Is discipleship, is it something that we do for just the church, saved folks? Or do we do it to the lost? Like, can you disciple a lost person, right? Because isn't the heart of discipleship um, helping people to follow Jesus? And I think sometimes we think, well, it's either you disciple unsaved people or saved people, right? And the truth is, you disciple both of them. Because if you're going to look at any person's life and say, okay, how can we help them, whether they've never heard the name of Jesus or not, or they say, man, I've been following him for years. Your goal in discipleship is to help them to submit all of their life to the lordship uh, of Jesus Christ. So that can be done uh, for unbelievers as you're walking them to the point of salvation, and then for those who already follow him. Jesus, he preached to the Jews to kick it off, his ministry was, and then to the Gentiles, those who didn't care at all about God. He had people um, who followed him the whole time, like uh, we see in John chapter 6, um, a bunch of people, thousands of people follow him, and then it says some turned around, some stopped following him. Uh, he preached the same message to Judas as he does to John, the one he loves and the one he knows is going to betray him. He, he preaches it to both. And so uh, we look at all people and we say, how can we help every single person uh, to go from where they are to um, following Jesus, whatever that looks like for them. So I think the key to discipleship is not getting caught up in methods. It's not getting caught up in, in what it needs to or should look like. It's simply um, being intentional and seeing all of your life as an opportunity to influence people. You've got brothers, sisters, mothers, fathers, you've got friends, you've got family, you've got coworkers, you've got people that you see for 10 seconds when you're gassing up your car. Every single person you come in contact with is an opportunity to influence them for Christ. Sometimes you sit down and have an amazing, awesome conversation about God. Other times, you get two or three minutes with them, tops, and that might be all you ever get with them. Sometimes you're the primary disciple maker in someone's life. They don't have many other people but you. Other times you partner with other disciples and you're pouring in to people. Sometimes it's one-on-one. -on -one, sometimes it's a group. It's all kinds of stuff. Don't get caught up on what it has to look like. Um, Jesus is bigger than methods. Amen? And, and so uh, I think the key, and I'll say this before we move on, the key to being a disciple maker is that you get so caught up in the gospel the beauty of Christ, the riches of Christ, that your perspective starts to turn into one like Paul's, who in Ephesians 3.8 says that this grace has been given to me, even though I am the least of all the saints, that I should preach, that I could preach the unsearchable riches of Christ to the Gentiles. That you see yourself as someone who desperately needs the gospel, and you are in awe of how God has saved you and is changing you, and his, his unsearchable riches that you say, man, it is a privilege to influence anyone in whatever capacity I can. And when you start to live a spirit-led life, understanding this is a beautiful adventure Jesus is letting you be a part of, um, you're going to see opportunities arise 
and your life is going to take on an entirely new meaning. It's the beauty of the church. As I mentioned earlier, our legacy isn't what we leave on earth. It's who we bring with us as we go to heaven. And, um, and I love that. So let's walk through this. First Samuel chapter 13, and I'm going to uh, do something a little bit different here with this first verse because this is a good time to do it. But let me, let me first read it for you. It says, Saul lived for one year and then became king. And when he had reigned for two years over Israel. Now it's going to go into some uh, other text here in a second, but let me just throw this out here first. Can we, can we trust this message? At first you're thinking, what are you talking about? We haven't got into anything yet. But here, here's the thing. Look at your Bibles. Now this is the ESV. Does anybody have um, a verse that looks a whole lot different than this one? Okay, well, you can throw it out there. Liz, what, what do you got? Well, that's weird. That doesn't sound like that. Anyone else got something that sounds completely different? Here's why I bring this up. So there are different parts of Scripture, a little bit here, a dot there, a sentence here, that we see the earliest manuscripts that we have of the, the Bible, we see um, some differences in. Now, in differences, I mean more than not, the vast majority of them have something similar, and then some of the early texts either leave it out or they have something a little bit different. Primarily when we're talking about Old Testament Hebrew texts that involve numbers, uh, because the, the number system in Hebrew is kind of complicated and it's very easily misinterpreted. But here's, here's what I want to say. If you read this and you see, okay, this is, this is, this is obviously off. Um, first off, the, the literal translation into Hebrew says that Saul was the son of a year. Saul, son of a year. Like, that's, that's what it means. Like, what does that mean? So some interpret it in like this and say, okay, Saul reigned for a year, and then for a couple years after that, he did his thing. Okay, but then we see Acts chapter 13, and Paul says that Saul reigned for 40 years. And historians have pieced together his life to think, well, he probably became king about 30 years old. So that's where Liz's text gets that. And so they said, okay, that's what that must mean. Uh, others simply say he became king when he was one year old, <laughs> and he reigned for two years. It's like, but that's not possible. And so what is it? And you want to know the truth? We don't know. We don't know. We don't have an accurate understanding of this one verse. Can we kind of piece it together with what Paul says in Acts 13? Yeah, that he, he obviously reigned for 40 years, but we don't know when he became king. We don't know much else. So here, here's what I want to say. Can you trust? Can you trust this stuff? Now, here's what you need to know. When we look at Old Testament manuscripts, we do not have the original manuscripts. Does that make sense? Like the Old Testament, New Testament, we don't have somewhere in a museum what was penned by Paul, what was penned by all these Old Testament guys, Moses. We don't have the original text. So how can we trust that this stuff is even trustworthy? Well, here's what we do have. We have in the first several centuries, I'm just talking New Testament here. So from um, the first century to fourth or fifth century, we have over 20,000 documents of the New Testament and Old Testament in Greek. Uh, we have about 6,000 in Greek, which was the language it was uh, originally written in. We have um, 
We have about 8,000 in Coptic, which is uh, Egyptian, and then we have Latin, uh, which is the Roman Empire. We have 20,000 documents. To put it in perspective, uh, the closest that we have outside of that for any other historical document is Homer's Iliad, which historians have taken, uh, even though there's legendary aspects to it, they've taken it and said, okay, we can kind of piece together some historical stuff from that. Now, they only have 700 fragments or manuscripts of Homer's Iliad, so 20,000 difference, and we're still discovering more and more and more. And you say, okay, but we don't have the original documents. What do we do if we don't have the original documents? Well, of the documents we do have, over 98% are dot for dot, word for word, in agreement. You say, but that's not 100%. What do you do? That's not 100%. Okay, let me say this. I went to seminary thinking to myself, what if I find out that somehow the Bible is not reliable? Like, is that going to really just shake my faith? Because this is the core. We say we believe in infallible and inerrancy in Scripture. What does that mean? Infallible means that the truths of Scripture are true, that they are true. But how do you know that? Well, one way is because of those documents, that we can trust those documents. We say the documents are inerrant, but if I said that only 98 to 99% are correct, you can't say it's an error, right? What we're saying is we believe the original documents, even though we don't have them, are without error. You say, how could we come to that conclusion? Here's where I see God's sovereignty over the whole thing. And I came out of seminary actually strengthened in my faith. And if you want to look at a, at a good resource for this, F.F. Bruce has a book called New Testament, The Making of the New Testament Documents. It's short, um, but packed full of good stuff. Have you ever, when you were a kid, um, you ever been in a classroom and you've been all lined up, maybe you're about to leave, and, and the teacher does this game to get everyone organized and quiet where they tell the first student about uh, just like a random sentence like, I love kittens. And then the, the first student has to turn around and say, I love kittens. And then the second to the third, I love kittens. And, and it goes back. And then the very last person says to the front of the line, when they get it, they, they say, okay, here's what the message I got. And they say something like, I hate dolphins and butterflies. And you're just like, well, I hate dolphins and butterflies. And then everyone laughs because they say, no, the original message was, I love kittens. And then it's all funny because over 20 people, it obviously got completely distorted and twisted to something weird. We're talking 2,000 years ago. These documents were not photocopied from 1 to 20,000. They were written down. Some of them, probably great scribes doing this for years. Some of them, maybe newbies. Others living in Egypt. Some living in other parts of the Middle East. They're writing down from a document. We call it the source document. We don't have that original document. We're, we're seeing one copy go to two, go to three, go to four. And you can't have one person saying, okay, are they all alike? I want to make sure they're all alike. They are scattering all over the world. And from there, they're getting then reproduced. And people are pinning them. And, and you don't know. Maybe this is going crazy. This, this whole, maybe at the beginning, there was one out of the first ten that got off. And, and then from there, it gets off and it gets off and it gets off and it gets off. So 2,000 years later, you're telling me we gathered 20,000 fragments and manuscripts, gathered them together, and word for word, iota for iota, we're at 99% correct right across the board. I say, how in the world outside of the sovereignty of God, knowing the flaws of mankind and even penmanship, can you get that kind of accuracy? No major theological doctrine touched 
numbers about when a guy became king is about as serious as it gets. Now, before I walk off from this, let me say this. If you're wondering, well, are there any other parts of Scripture that some of the earlier manuscripts we don't have, the ones that will affect your life or that you'll see more on a regular basis? uh, Most of them are things like this, random things. You'll see in Mark uh, chapter 16, verses 9 through 20, um, you'll see this account of Jesus' resurrection where it talks about getting bit by snakes and being healed and all that stuff. And so our, our friends in the Appalachian Mountains who do the snake handling and all that stuff, the poisonous snake, they're getting their doctrine from this. Do not base your doctrine off of the one passage that we're kind of like, eh, it's kind of iffy on. But for the gist of that passage, we know that it's trustworthy because the other three Gospels have most of what's written in there. So it's kind of like, eh, okay. And then the other one is John chapter 7, verses 53 through uh John chapter 8, verse 10 or 11, and it's the woman who was caught in adultery, and Jesus spits on the ground, and he draws something. We don't know what he said. It's just a, it's a narrative, beautiful story, but we're not making any big doctrine from that one passage, if that makes sense. So uh, you'll probably see in your Bible a little scribble, like earliest manuscripts do not include this. Um, so, but you can trust, you can trust the message. Verse 2 says, Saul chose 3,000 men of Israel. 2,000 were with Saul in Michmash and the hill country of Bethel. And 1,000 were with Jonathan in Gibeah of Benjamin. And the rest of the people he sent home, every man to his tent. So he's building an army here. And Jonathan defeated the garrison of the Philistines that was at Gibeah, and the Philistines heard of it. And Saul blew the trumpet throughout all the land, saying, Let the Hebrews hear. And all Israel heard it, said that Saul had defeated the garrison of the Philistines, and also that Israel had become a stench to the Philistines. And the people were called out to join Saul at Gilgal. And the Philistines mustered to fight with Israel 30,000 chariots and 6,000 horsemen and troops like the sand on the seashore in multitude. They came up and encamped in Michmash to the east of beth Aven. And when the people of Israel saw that they were in trouble, for the people were hard-pressed, the people hid themselves in caves and in holes and in rocks and in tombs and cisterns. And some Hebrews crossed the fords of the Jordan to the land of Gad and Gilead. Saul was still at Gilgal, and all the people followed him trembling. All right, first thing we see. Second thing we're stopping at, but the first thing we see when it comes to some disciple-making tips or what we see from Saul's life here. So he's putting together this army, and here's basically what's happening. So the Philistines are to the west of the nation of Israel, their land, and they are uh, attacking from time to time. They actually have this garrison of troops who are planted within the boundaries of uh, the Israelites' country, about three miles from the capital city. Saul becoming king is like, this ain't right. We got people who hate us and attacked us on and off for our history of the last couple hundred years here. And now a bunch of them are camping right in the middle of us. Let's take care of this. So he divides up some troops and he has his son Jonathan take over uh, 1,000 of them and they camp close by. Jonathan knocks out, kills these guys. And so they are not camped anymore. And so uh, Saul's like, yeah, this is great, wonderful. But the Philistines are like, you poked the bear. Now we're ticked off and we're coming at you, and it's going to be crazy. And Saul's sitting there thinking, I got 3,000 people total. Yeah, we wanted to get our land back, but now they're coming at us, and they're going to crush us. 
And now he's calling for all Israel, and Israel's trembling. They're hiding in rocks because they're like, we don't know what to do. Now, the rest of the story uh, will actually get played out through chapter 13 and in chapter 14. Chapter 14 is the fun part of it. Chapter 13, not so much. So what can we gain from this? I think there's uh, several things. I'm going to mention three things that when it comes to Saul putting together his army that we can gather um, and apply when it comes to making disciples. The first one is this. Pick someone. (laughs) Start somewhere. You see, Saul, he starts this army, and he could just have all 3,000 people under himself as commander, right? But he says, no. I'm going to split up, and I'm going to give a 1,000 to my son, Jonathan. Now, it's not like Jonathan has a huge, long history of being faithful and a great military guy, but Saul says, I see something in you, and I'm going to give you some power. I'm going to empower you to do this. And he splits up. For a guy who doesn't love God very much, that actually takes some humility to do that. But he picked someone. He sent the rest of them home, but he picked someone and said, let's walk together. I think a lot of us, we hear about disciple-making all the time. Pastor Ryan's going to talk about disciple-making on Wednesday night. I don't know if I should go because it makes me feel bad about not making disciples. Listen, you can talk yourself out of it all day long. You can, you, you can be insecure and you can feel like, man, I'm just not equipped. But you've got to start somewhere. And, and Saul starts with his family. He says, okay, I'm going to trust and walk with someone who's close to me. Now, there's pros and cons to discipling your family and to say, okay, let's, let's study the word together. Let's, let's, let's grow together. Jesus, we see he gets the least of all the honor that he received in his ministry. Where? In his hometown. In his hometown. He's saying, hey, everyone that's been a prophet knows you get, you're not honored in your hometown. It can be hard. But I'll say this. You've got to start somewhere. You've got to pick someone. You've got to just jump in. I am... Um, I was talking to a couple that was getting married, or they are getting married, and we were in premarital counseling uh, just last night, and they, um, they're they about to start this family, and the husband was pretty insecure, and he said, I'm just a newbie. I'm, I'm brand new in Christ, and I, I don't know what to do, and I'm sitting there telling like, hey, you're called to be the spiritual leader. You're going to get married. Um, you, <laughs> like, I know you feel insecure, but like, you got to do something, and there was just this big gap at first between where he's being called to and where he feels like he is, and so we just broke it down, and I said, listen, just start somewhere. What do you guys do? Well, I, I don't really pray at all. I don't really do anything. Okay, that's where you are. That's okay. Um, what about you? I pray a little bit, but not much. Okay, well, what's the first step here? Say, well, I'd like if maybe he could just pray for our family at dinner time. Okay, and the next week, before we gather again, pray twice. You can pick any, any days you want. Just pray over the meal twice. And here, here could be your prayer. God, thank you for the food. Amen. That's all you got to say. Like the words just got to come out of your mouth. Okay, you guys read the word together. No, I don't read the word at all. Okay, you got a Bible. Yeah, I got a Bible. Okay, um, here's what I want you to do. I want you to open up the gospel of, of um, I told them John, because if they did this with Matthew, they just get caught up in genealogy. And I said, okay, just read the first paragraph, five minutes, two or three times this week, just five minutes, and then get together with your soon-to-be spouse for five minutes and ask each other one or two questions like, what does this mean? And and what can we learn and actually live out from this? If you've got questions, bounce it off each other. So, okay, so just do that. Ten minutes total, two or three times this week. Say, okay, we can do that. You see, that might sound silly to some of us. You've got to start somewhere, though. 
you got to start somewhere. i got a grow group full of men that I'm trying to challenge all the time. And I finally asked them in the middle of the group one time. I said, okay, does anyone actually read the Bible? Does anyone read the Bible? It's okay. Where you are where you are. Does anyone read the Bible? No, I don't. No, I don't. All the guys. No, I don't. No, I don't. Okay. How about this? I don't care if it's five in the morning. I don't care if it's late at night. Let's just get together. Let's just open up the Bible and just start walking verse by verse. I'll lead you guys and we can do it together. And so we meet Thursday afternoons. And we just do it. Like, you just got to start somewhere. The second thing you see is that you've got to empower as you go. So I think a lot of times um, we look at discipleship as a prep time for then the mission, right? And and Saul sees uh, Jonathan as a capable guy. Uh, He knows his son pretty well, but he doesn't have a long track history of doing well leading battles. But he gives him some power. He gives him some authority. I think if you're going to make disciples, you've got to empower as you're training. You see, Jesus, he, he doesn't just address his first disciples as, hey, guys, who wants to follow me and go to seminary for a few years and then do some awesome stuff for my kingdom? No, he sees them fishing, and he says what? Matthew chapter 4. Follow me, and I will make you fishers of men. Follow me and I'll make you fishers of men. There are seasons, and biblically you can make this argument, there are certainly seasons where you just need to be immersed in the gospel. You just need to, you need to get your bearings. You need to start to get a foundation. But here's the thing. When you're discipling someone, create it in the DNA of that relationship that whatever they're learning, they can now share with someone else. They don't have to get to the end of the book to start sharing chapter one. And so just make that known. Otherwise, what will happen is if, is if re producing themselves, making more disciples is not in the DNA at the very beginning of any relationship you have with discipleship. It doesn't just naturally happen. You get to the end and you're like, okay, we've been meeting for like two years and gone through like 600 books and parts of the Bible and now we're just staring at each other. We should do something else. And then it's like, well, I guess you could do this with someone else. Hey, I don't know. I don't know about all that. Let's go do something else. Just read numbers, <laughs> you know, like, and then you just find yourself going in circles. But you've got to empower them. Let me ask you this. Are you, some of you guys have been making disciples for a while, and you've got people that you're just pouring into. Are you actually holding them back right now because you fear that they might fall on their face? That maybe they're not quite ready? Like, are you bottlenecking the next generation of leaders in Jesus' church because of your own insecurities? Because Jesus, if you look through the Gospels, he gives young men power long before they should probably be trusted with it. Luke's a long Gospel, and we're in chapter 10 when he says, 72, boom, basically strip down, get rid of your stuff, and I'm going to send you out in pairs. If you're insecure, you got someone with you. Go do this. Cast out demons, do all kinds of stuff. Cast out demons? I didn't go to demon casting out school. What do I do? You're like, they had, I'm sure, all kinds of questions. But he says, go. You got my spirit? I taught you some stuff, go do it. Go do it. A good um, apprenticeship model or discipleship model that, that the secular world has used that you can use um, to make sure that you're actually empowering people as you go is, is this one. It's, it's a four-piece deal. Um, it is, and many of you have heard this one before, I do and you watch. I do and you help. You do and I help. You do and I watch. And then you go do that with someone else. 
So, for instance, let me give you an example. When I sit down with most people, and, I, and if I do some one-on-one stuff, I'll say, okay, let's just read through a book of the Bible. At first, I'll start by reading and start doing some of the explaining. When we finish that book, then I say, okay, let's go every other week. I'll read it, explain stuff, then you kick it off the next week, you'll read it and explain stuff, and then we go, after we're done with that book, you want to go through another book? Okay, so let's now have you lead it, and I'll help a little bit, and then eventually you're doing it, you're teaching me. You're teaching me. I sit down with guys, I have them pray for me. Pray for my life. Pray pray for me. you got to give them some power, empower them to do it. And then last but not least, you see uh, at the very end of this in verse 6 and 7, all the other people who were not chosen to be leaders at this point, they're trembling, they're hiding. There are going to be people that you disciple, that you pour into, that don't measure up at first. They're going to frustrate you. You're going to get upset. You're going to want um, them to be growing way faster than they actually are. And you've got to realize, Saul doesn't bail on them. He says, this is who they are. This is where they are. This is where you are right now. It's okay. It's okay. We're going to walk forward. So you've got to walk with the weak. You've got to walk with the weak. Verse 8. He waited seven days, the time appointed by Samuel. If you go back to 1 Samuel chapter 10, verse 6, you'll see Samuel said, um, wait seven days and I'll be there. So that's where he gets that. But Samuel did not come to Gilgal, and the people were scattering from him. So Saul said, bring the burnt offering here to me and the peace offerings. And he offered the burnt offerings. That's a no-no. As soon as he had finished offering the burnt offering, behold, Samuel came. Isn't that how it goes, right? Behold, Samuel's here now. Great. Hey, let's get some ice cream. Um, and Saul went out to meet him and greet him. And Samuel said, what have you done? <laughs> what have you done? The Hebrew for greet is literally bless him. Like Saul's like, hey, <laughs> let's hang out. I just want to bless you. And Samuel's like, I'm going to cut you to pieces. Something went wrong and you screwed it up. That's not the literal translation. But anyway, and Saul said, When I saw that the people were scattering from me and that you did not come, so first it's the people's fault, then it's your fault, Samuel, within the days appointed, and that the Philistines had mustered at Michmash, and so now it's their fault, blaming three different groups of people. I said, now the Philistines will come down against me at Gilgal, and I have not sought the favor of the Lord. So I forced myself, I forced myself, offering the burnt offering. And offered the burnt offering. And Samuel said to Saul, you have done foolishly. You have not kept the command of the Lord your God with which he commanded you. For then the Lord would have established your kingdom over Israel forever. But now your kingdom shall not continue. The Lord has sought out a man after his own heart. So who who do you think that is? David. So when you hear David as a man who sought after God's own heart, it's not in context by itself. It's the fact that his predecessor was someone who was given authority but didn't care about God. Didn't care about God. The Lord has commanded him to be prince or leader over his people because you have not kept what the Lord commanded you. All right, third thing we see is you got to submit to the Holy Spirit. You've got to submit to the Holy Spirit. You can take initiative when it comes to making disciples, but you can't take control of the situation. You can take initiative, but you can't take control. So Saul's trying to do the best he can, right? He, he's seeking the Lord. Many of us would look at this passage and say, well, at least he was seeking God. At least he was seeking God. But what's Saul's sin? 
Saul's sin is that he's doing the right things in the wrong way. He's on mission saying, we need to back up. We're about to get pummeled by the Philistines. We need to seek God. Seems like it's going great. Throw him a bone, right, Samuel? Like he's doing what he can. But God said he wanted it done in a certain way. There's one out of many things you know you can gather from the Old Testament. It is when God says, this is the way I want it done, you do it the way God says, I wanted it done that way. And so Saul sees his dynasty coming to a close before it even starts. He's got a predecessor that's already being trained somewhere. He doesn't know who it is. He's got someone who's going to take over for him. You talk about later on the paranoia that he had over David. Think about the words that Samuel, as a spiritual leader, someone who Saul looked up to, someone who gave Saul his calling, is now saying, there's someone who God likes more than you in this position. So every time he sees David after this, you've got to think, like, I hate this guy. You, you, to me, are my own failure. That's what I see when I see you. That's uh, not a good way to go. It's not a good way to go. So when Saul um, does the right thing, but he does it in the wrong way, in that he made this offering when he shouldn't have, he should have waited for Samuel, his whole world falls apart. His whole world falls apart. Sounds like a pretty serious deal for a guy who seemed to have good intentions. Let me say this. When it comes to disciple making, and you've got relationships, whether, again, it's in community or one-on-one or um, the lady at the, you know, the gas attendant, whatever. I mean, you've got to make it 100% about Jesus and his will. Because human nature will jump into this thing called mission and say, yeah, God wants me to be part of this mission. It's going to be awesome. He gave me his Holy Spirit, so I'm just the messenger. I'm just the servant. I'm just going to bow down to what he wants. But then you make it personal, don't you? And, and you start to cling on and say, okay, this is now kind of kind of my thing a little bit, or at least that's the temptation. So you got to make sure that you're constantly checking your heart when you're pouring into people. Is this still about what God wants for their lives, or is it about what I want for them? Because you'll see your flesh want to take over the situation and take control of things. And that's what Saul does. He takes control, and God says there's some issues going on. You'll find yourself doing this if... You start a relationship, and it's like, oh, you want to get together and just maybe study God's word? We'll learn together a little bit. Like, I, I don't know much more than you, or maybe I don't even know as much as you, but we can just get together. And then, before you know it, you're three weeks in, and you've heard their stories about drama in their life now for three straight weeks, and you're getting ticked. And at first, you were just like, hey, nonchalant, let's start a relationship. Now, three weeks in, you're ticked at them. Why are you so mad at their drama now? Or you start to see six months in, hey, I've been meeting with you for a while, but I'm upset because I'm not seeing you grow spiritually. Like what? Like I want you to? Or like God wants you to? Because they might be exactly where God wants them to. They might be a long-term project. I think we're all long-term projects. Or you simply see that you're impatient with God's timing in the whole thing. You take it personal. You take it personal. Frustration uh, sets in when you start to uh, go from, hey, I want these people to follow Jesus, to I want these people to do things the way I do things. 
I want, I want these people to do things the way I do things. And you don't know, sometimes it's just, it's just a, a slight turn, but it can head you in the wrong direction. Let's be honest. Most of the frustrations we have with people in our lives are not that they're not meeting God's expectations. It's that they're not meeting ours. We put expectations on them. We, we put the expectations on them. I remember uh, when we were in Utah, we had a, a few guys that we were training up to be pastors. And, um, and there's one of them that we were kind of insecure about. He was a young guy. He's like 19 years old. But he showed, like, I, I want God's will for my life, and I want um, to be a godly man. And we said, okay, come through this pastoral training with us. You may not be a pastor at all, but you will, you'll, you'll know what it means to be a godly man by the end of this. Do you want to be a part of it? No strings attached? Whatever you want? Yeah, let's do that. Three months in, he came to me and said, I don't think that I, I want to continue on. I'm not called to be a pastor. Matter of fact, I want to move to New Mexico and, and live with some, uh, some family and, and go to a church down there. No, no ill will on his end. He just felt like he needed to make that switch. And he sensed God was telling him that. I was so stinking ticked. Because in that three-month period, I went from Dude, no strings attached. Come and do some of this pastoral training. Hey, you're not going to be a pastor, I know, but you'll just be a godly man by the end of it. I had come to think, man, what if God calls him to be a pastor? Oh, he could plant a gospel community church. Wow, what's going to happen with this? This is going to be great. I started to dream about what God was going to do in his life. I started to think it was a given he's going to be a pastor. Forget about the godly man thing. Like we're going bigger than that. We're going godly man and someone who's going to lead. Like He's going to lead 10 million people. You know, I'm thinking in my mind, like there's so much potential. I, I tried talking him out. This is how twisted it gets. I tried talking him out of moving down to New Mexico even though he was pretty sure that was God's will. And I said, no, you're just a young person. You probably just want to switch in life. You just want to change. Later, I saw, yeah, that was God's will. But what was stopping me was because he was not meeting my expectations as what I wanted for him when it came to following Jesus. But he was right smack dab in the middle of God's will for his own life. Are you putting expectations on those you're discipling that Jesus is not putting expectations on? He's got his will. And he wants them to grow. But don't put your own in there. Don't put your own in there. Gets tangled pretty quick. Check your heart as you're discipling people. Submit, God, I need your timing, not my timing for their life. You want fruit? You're celebrating about this little fruit that they're like, they're, they're not um, going crazy this week. And I'm thinking, why aren't they leading 10 Bible studies? Like, God, okay, let me be okay with your pace and your fruit and trust you're doing what you need to be doing. Verse 15, and Samuel arose and went up from Gilgal. The rest of the people went up after Saul to meet the army, and they went up from Gilgal to Gibeah of Benjamin. And Saul numbered the people who were present with him, about 600 men. And Saul and Jonathan, his son, and the people who were present with them stayed in Gibeah of Benjamin. But the Philistines encamped in Michmash. So Michmash is where Saul, to start this whole chapter off, got his army together and camped in. Then he beat up the little group of Philistines and said, now I got all my land back. Now all the Israelites are running and the Philistines took over the same place that Saul camped at at the beginning. It's just like, it's just a slap in the face, a little bit of irony in it. And raiders came out of the camp of the Philistines in three companies. One company turned towards Orpah 
to the land of Shual, another company turned toward Beth Haran, and another company turned toward the border that looks down on the valley of Zeboim toward the wilderness. Let's stop there. Fourth thing we see is when it comes to making disciples, you reproduce what you are. You reproduce what you are. So I just said a little bit ago that we got to make sure we don't put expectations on people and, and get mad when they're not following Jesus the way we want them to follow Jesus. We don't want people to follow us. We obviously want them to follow God. But the way, let's just be honest, the way that most people see what a devoted life looks like to Christ is in the people who pour into them, disciple them. So Paul, he, he says, hey, do as I do. Follow me as I follow Jesus. Uh, people naturally see, oh, well, I was just discipled that way. Like, like I, I've had a lot of classes in life. Five-week preaching class. At all the classes I took in seminary, only five weeks on preaching. And that was just meeting once a week. When I see how I preach, guess who I preach similarly to? At least in my opinion, when it comes to stories, I want Andy. Andy is the one who preached the gospel, and I heard it, and I got saved, and I sat under that teaching, and I, it just kind of became a part of me. When I think of what teaching looks like, I just kind of naturally do what he does. Now, I'm obviously much better, but <laughs> throw the guy a bone. He's trying. He's trying. <laughs> so, Saul is getting some tough news. He's getting some tough news, and he's hearing that his dynasty is obviously coming to a close before it starts. And after this rebuke, after this horrible news, it's business as usual. Can you imagine? Saul's like, okay, I did what I should be doing. Oh, no, Samuel came. Uh-oh, I offered the sacrifice. I shouldn't do it. Now Samuel rebukes me, and then Saul's like, okay, I guess I'll just go back to work now. And he trots back down the mountain, and he goes back to his soldiers, and he's still got a horrible, dramatic situation in front of him. Picture how disheartened he is, knowing like, man, I was trying to do everything I thought I should do, and I did it the wrong way, and God has, has punished me for it. And I got to go back and face these people, knowing that like my <laughs> I could die tomorrow. It doesn't sound like God has a great long-term plan for my life. I'm suddenly less excited to go to work today. But what he does see, or you have to think he, he's seeing, is that he was focused on being on mission and doing uh, the kingdom expanding work that God had for him. But in the process of it, he realized God cared more about his personal obedience and growth than he does about um, what Saul sees as the big picture. God's got it all in control. And I think for some of us, we are making disciples, we're trying to make disciples, we're trying to influence people for Christ, and yet God's saying, are you growing spiritually yourself? You say, yeah, yeah, this is the way the kingdom works, right? You reach out, and so then that's how you grow. And you can't really grow much until you start reaching out. Like, you gotta, I'll tell you what, one of the biggest temptations in ministry, and I'm talking for all of us here, is to put a pause on your own sanctification, because you get so focused on the sanctification of those around you. And I'm telling you what, I can listen, I got to listen to three sermons every Sunday. It's about the last 10 seconds of the last sermon that I start to see like, oh gosh, maybe I could get something for myself out of this. Because I'm sitting there thinking for the whole thing, service after service, what am I going to tell the people? 
What is Andy saying? Oh, I don't know if I'd say it the way Andy said it. Yeah, I wouldn't say it that way. The way I would explain to someone would be like this. I'm comparing myself. I'm, I'm grabbing bits and pieces, not because God's doing a work in my life, but because I'm going to take this to someone else. How many times do you find yourself uh, reading the word and you're like, ooh, that's good. I started this because I just needed my own soul, but this is good. I got I to gotta, I gotta share that with somebody. This has got to be, and that's good. That's all great stuff. But is that at the cost of God continuing his work in your own life? Your prayers. Well, God, pray that you save the city. Pray that you um, just be in the, uh, with the person I met with today and be with uh, the family of the people I'm going to meet with tomorrow and be with, and God's saying, like, have you, ever, have you just talked to me? When did you stop following me? When did you stop following me? Well, I guess I kind of stopped when I got too busy telling everyone else how to follow you. I'll tell you what, some of the most hardened heart people in ministry are the ministers themselves. Because everything they receive is not for them, it's for those around them. You got to check yourself over and over and over. I don't know if there's much more of a, <laughs> of a I'm going to get your attention than what God just did to Saul. I wonder what that looks like for us. I, um, there's an old saying out there that you can teach people what you want them to be, but you can only reproduce what you are. So like I can teach you guys everything we should do in Christ, but if I'm going to sit down and really pour into you, like I can only reproduce what I am. What I am. See, we, we try uh, with Silas, we try to help him and teach him to be polite, um, to pick up on social cues, even though he's just a little guy. And he, he's learning. Um, but in, in marriage, and if you're, if you're married, you, you're going to know what I'm talking about real quick. You got quirks, right? And you got weird little quirks that the other person gets annoyed with. And, and it just kind of becomes part of life. And, and you just get used to it. Well, I, I love my wife. Um, I'm going to pretend she's not sitting here. I, I love Tara. Um, I, I got lots of quirks. Most of them you probably know about because you, you see them in me when I preach. But one thing that she'll um, she'll do, I'm trying to word this properly. Gosh, you got to really slow down, but the clock is ticking back there. And so sometimes, like if we're sharing the sink, um, she, she she can get kind of nitpicky. Like she'll say, oh, you got a stray hair on your beard. She'll just kind of pick at it, and she'll say, let me trim that for you. And I'll say, get away from me. I'll say, leave me alone. And, and I can't smell. You guys have heard the skunk story, right? But she can smell well, and she'll smells in here. Sometimes she'll just mess with my mind. I'm like, no, I don't think it smells. And she'll say, it smells in here. You know, it smells like, I didn't smell. And I'll just say over and over, leave me alone. Leave me alone. I'm a full-grown human being. I can groom myself. I, I can do things. I just, please, I love you. Quit, quit picking at my shoulders and my skin and my beard and my hair. Like, just leave me alone. I love you. Please leave me alone. And that's what happens a lot of days in our house. And I remember, I remember the day she told me she was cuddling with Silas. He's like a year and a half old, just a little guy. And, and she was cuddling with Silas, and they were rocking in the chair. And he said, or she told me that he looked up at her and does this, like, just like she does to me. And he said, Mommy, you stinky. 
Why are you stinky? And she couldn't believe that Silas would say that to her. But she has to realize Silas didn't learn that. He, he's got it like genetically built into him because of his mama. And now like he, there's certain things. We've got this rice bag and corn bag. You know, you heat them up in the microwave. Ladies like them because they stay warm and, and whatever. He hates the smell of it. So Tara, she keeps that thing to keep warm. And he's Mama, you stinky. Mama, you stinky. He's saying all the time to her, Mama, you stinky. Because he says, and she's like offended at it. And I say, you see? <laughs> you see how this works. You can teach what you want to be, but you only reproduce what you are. You can get frustrated when you're pouring into people and you're discipling them. But how many times do you realize, and this is important to realize, that the lack of fruit that you're seeing in their lives is simply a reflection of the lack of fruit you taught them to have that you you're struggling with yourself are you a bottleneck for those around you you can't lead people past where you are right are you a bottleneck sometimes when i'm discipling young men and they're struggling with uh, uh sexual immorality impure thoughts they're struggling at first it's a big deal they're like this is taking over my life i can't deal with it and then and then you see as the weeks go on um and they're making a little bit of progress but sometimes it doesn't become that big of a deal anymore to them and it's like ah, yeah it's still kind of an issue and i gotta check them i gotta say this and they say, listen let's just pretend right now you're married what if your spouse thought the same thoughts that you think has the same physical struggles that you're struggling with, would you think that was a healthy marriage? Like, what if they were just exactly like you as you are right now? Would you want to be married to that? I feel like they're, like, cheating on me. Like, I got, I got nasty thoughts. These are horrible thoughts. I don't want them to be like me. All of a sudden, the junk just got serious again, didn't it? Didn't it? You got to check yourself. You got to check yourself. Last but not least, verse 19. Now there was no blacksmith to be found throughout all the land of Israel. See, this is kind of an odd thing, but um, it's happening. <laughs> For the Philistines said, lest the Hebrews make themselves swords or spears. But every one of the Israelites went down to the Philistines to sharpen his plowshare, his mattock, his axe, or his sickle. And the charge was two-thirds of a shekel for the plowshares and for the mattocks and a third of a shekel for sharpening the axes and for setting the goads. So this was way too much money in their minds. Um, So on the day of the battle, there was neither sword nor spear found in the hand of any of the people with Saul and Jonathan, but Saul and Jonathan, his son, had them. And the garrison of the Philistines went out to the pass of Michmash. Okay, last thing we see when it comes to disciple making tonight, and we'll wrap this up. You've got to equip your disciples with the right tools. You've got to equip them with the right tools. The Philistines had some control in the land of Israel, and they had made it to the point of, you guys, and they're obviously thinking ahead, you guys, you can't have your own blacksmiths. You can't, because remember, before Saul, they don't have a king, they don't have an army, so Israel had to bow down to them. I'm going to make you guys come to the Philistines, you're going to have to pay way more than you should to sharpen all of your stuff, all of the metal, like we got all the good metal, you got just wimpy stuff, and you got to come to us. So now, Philistines thinking, hey, if we ever go to fight the Israelites, they ain't got no weapons. They don't have any weapons. And the Israelites are like, oh, this stinks. What do we do? And only two people have swords. See, what you're doing yesterday 
is obviously prepping you for what's going to happen today. And Saul can rally the troops all day long, but you've got to give them the right tools. You can make disciples, teach them about Jesus, help them to get over some of their struggles. But are they able to reproduce that and help other people? This is where your method of disciple making is incredibly important. If you go to a grow group and you're the leader and all you do is teach and throw out all kinds of great theological concepts and then you have all these different, um, you know, um, wonderful quotes and all these different things, you're like, great, here, boom, you got all that? Now, I need an apprentice. Who wants to lead a grow group? Ain't nobody in that room going to say, yeah, I can do what you just did. Now, do they need to do all that you just did to lead a grow group? No, of course they don't. But that's what they saw you do. So it was a good thing, but when it comes to reproducing, nobody feels like they can do what you do. Are you simplifying discipleship enough to where they feel like, even in the early stages, they can do what you're doing with them and do it with someone else? Do they feel like that? Or are you keeping yourself a little bit above them just so you always got someone to disciple, right? Because we like to take the, the low-hanging fruit and those who are just like, ah, my life is horrible, but I want to follow Jesus. You're like, I can do that because you're insecure about your own knowledge. And some of us, what we do is we keep those people who don't know as much as us, we keep them going along, but we always got to make sure we know more than them. We know more than them. And the problem is when it comes to reproducing, they, because we've always kind of kept them down here, never equipped them enough to be our own teacher, they can't, they can't do what we just did for them. I'll tell you what, one beautiful thing, if you're struggling with that, go to some peers and start discipling them and find out, wow, people who, who are, um, they, have, they have the same knowledge level that I do. Um, we would consider ourselves, you know, to some degree, odd statement, but on the same level maturity-wise, you're going to be challenged by them. You're going to see that's where iron sharpens iron. You're going to be like, gosh, they know. Now, you don't do it out of insecurity, but you do it as, man, they're raising the bar for me. They're raising the bar. Like, if you're a preacher, go disciple another preacher. If you, if you are a worship leader, go disciple other worship leaders who might have more talent than you. Put yourself around other folks. Some of us, we disciple those who are just, just down here so that we always feel good about ourselves. Don't do that. But you've got to equip them. You've got to simplify discipleship so that they can actually reproduce it. They can reproduce it. What resources do you give them? Give them books. Give them tools. If you're part of Crosspoint Church, you can be part of, right now, media for free. You can have a Bible study at the tip of your finger if you want to. We can get your email. We can send it to you. You can help. You can give them all kinds of tools. You can walk with them. You can walk with them. But the most empowering tool is that, again, I'll say it again. If at the beginning of the relationship you say, the DNA of this thing is that you're going to be doing what I'm doing to you. You're going to be doing it with other people, and we're not waiting to the end. I'm not equipping you to send, but I'm equipping you in the sending. Then you can walk with them as they're walking with someone else. That's the most beautiful kind. And I'll end with this. You can give them all kinds of tools and methods. You will never give anyone anything more important than the gospel. To help them live a spirit-led life, to be enamored by the good news of Jesus. Let me give you maybe the best piece of advice you might ever get when it comes to discipleship. If you're with someone who's frustrating you, what do you do? If you're with someone who is just excelling and they are growing like crazy, what do you do? 
If you're with someone who doesn't know the name of Jesus, what do you do? If you're with someone who, whatever your circumstance, you want to know your next step, give them the good news. Give it to them over and over and over and over and over. Help them to see how it changes the way you think and experience everyday life. Go deeper and deeper in the same message. That's discipleship. Walk with them. Bring them along as you, as you physically walk out your faith. Sit down and teach them. Let them teach you. Go deeper in the same message. We could talk about tools all day long. You want to give them the good stuff? Give them the gospel. Give them the gospel. That's the heartbeat of it. That's the heartbeat of it. So what's God saying to you tonight? How is he challenging you? For some of you, it's that you just need to get in the game. You need to get in the game. As Charles Spurgeon says, you're either uh, a missionary or the mission field. There's no third option. Jump in. Start. Start with your spouse. Start with your kids. Just pick up the Bible and say, let's just talk about it. Let's see where, where it goes. For others, you're pouring into people, and you know you need to give them some power. You need to, you need to challenge them to get out of the nest and stop hoarding them as your own little disciple and, and give them some authority to lead others. Maybe you need to back away and let them do what you do for a while. But for all of us, we need to have the heartbeat that we're enamored with the gospel and that we're, this is all we really got to give anyone. And if that's your heart, you're going to be a pretty good disciple maker. Let's pray.